0: On Memorial Day, we hear about a young man on his way to war and an older soldier searching for the next chapter. Two stories about responsibility and connecting with others from Miley Malloy and Kurt Vonnegut. I'm your host, Meg Wallitzer. You'll want to stay tuned. You're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Shorts has a long history, and while I've been happily listening for years, I've only been hosting for a little while now. One thing I sometimes feel is this tension between wanting to say a lot because these stories are amazing, and wanting to say only a little also because these stories are amazing and can speak for themselves. In any case, whether I talk too much or not enough, it's an absolute delight to present such wonderful work each week. The great thing about short stories is that they are both enduring and immediate. We can read them to celebrate and to mourn and to honor. On Memorial Day, it's the honoring we think of. The world is in a difficult place at the moment, but when we look at stories that touch on our involvement in conflicts, old and new... We're reminded of the courage and dignity that often come with conflict and loss. And sometimes it's because of honor, which isn't as obvious as bravery, but just as important. The two stories on this program are related to war, but are subtle narratives, not about the heat of battle, but about the moments before, between, and after. A chance encounter between a man and a woman and a soldier's search for a fallen friend bring up different ideas about what is honorable. Vonnegut, being Vonnegut, can be very funny. And Miley Malloy, as we know, is a vivid and beautiful writer. But something that connects the stories is a quietly expressed and partly suppressed pain. The wars here may be different, but the pain resonates in a similar way. And we also have a vivid, direct account in the form of a letter from Vonnegut himself. Miley Malloy, the author of our first story hails from Montana, and many of her narratives feature its wide-open spaces and its men of few words. Her books are provocatively titled and include Both Ways is the Only Way I Want It, Half in Love, and Do Not Become Alarmed. She also contributed a story to Selected Shorts' new anthology, Small Odysseys. In red, Malloy has deftly inserted herself into a completely different world, London during World War II, A man and a woman meet at a pub. She is bereft. He is about to leave for battle and is anxious. But the story doesn't follow the easy route, that Eve of battle seduction trope from some World War II fiction and films. Yes, there's a girl back home in the States and a sister too, but everyone in this story seems haunted by the past and they're about to be haunted by what might await them in the very near future. Reader Keith Sarabica's compelling voice has been heard in many shorts performances over the years. His career in film and television includes roles on The Equalizer, Angel, Golden Years, and The Dark Knight. Here he is with Miley Malloy's Red.
1: There were lines for everything. Lines for the movies, for telephones, for the bus, lines to piss, lines to eat. The movies were all war glory and girls you couldn't have. The telephones never worked, the buses were crowded, the toilets were filthy, the food was scarce and often spoiled, and for all of it, people stood to wait. But now Red's troop, holed up in South London, was waiting. He guessed from what little he knew, to be sent to France, where waiting was the least of anyone's problems. Lying on his bunk, Red wrote his kid sister Jackie about the lines, the orderly, sad-looking people in gray, and how rotten everything was they waited for. He drew her a cartoon of gloomy, queued up Brits and hoped Jackie would laugh, but the cartoon made him sad. He never wrote anything about the war or the bombs. Nothing he had to say would get past the censors, and he didn't want to see it on paper. His sister was a sweet kid, half in love with him since he'd become a soldier, a bright, solid American girl. He missed American girls. He missed American. Ranger training in the Florida swamps had been a brutal game, but it was still a game. He had been good at it and proud to be a soldier, but here in Southfields, it was different. The makeshift barracks stank, and the men stayed out all night with horrors and returned in the morning, stinking worse. Red was the only one in the outfit who still had the first issue of condoms. Everything to do with sex depressed him too much. He wrote to his sister, I miss you like mad, mad like crazy. And then he signed off and took the letter down to the mail desk. He added a postscript while he waited. Am now waiting in line to mail this. Of course, I will have enormous heavy feet when you see me next, like someone dipped in concrete to be dumped in a river. Feet for waiting in line forever. The officer at the desk read his letter, smirked and sealed the envelope, letting it all go through. And Red went out to find something to eat. He considered the line waiting along the brick wall of a corner restaurant with blacked-out windows. At the end of the line was a girl. Big eyes, pale skin, a regal neck crowned with piled-up dark hair, a red coat tied at the waist, and high boots. Red joined the line behind her, leaned against the rough brick wall, and was content to look. She required nothing of him. No more than a fine painting required speech or action. But then she turned to him, and the tremendous eyes found his. Do you think we'll be here long? she asked. Red pushed himself to standing, no longer than usual. She didn't turn away. He gathered courage. Are you hungry? She nodded. ''Will you join me?'' he asked. ''I'm hungry too.'' It wasn't a brilliant line, but she didn't seem to care. (laughs) ''All right,'' she said. She had a way of speaking without moving the muscles in her face, as if any contortion of her features would mar them. It annoyed Red and made him anxious to see such a contortion. Still, it made him happy that to the waitress they must seem like a couple.'' He held the girl's chair at their table, and she lowered her body into it, straight backed. She wore a black wool dress under her red coat. He asked, uh, What brought her to this part of town? And she looked at the blackened window, as if to see what part she was in. I was shopping, she said. You don't have any shopping bags? I couldn't find anything I wanted. She seemed to mean it in the grander sense. Someone told me about a shop in Wimbledon, but you need to know someone to get anything. Men think stockings are a luxury, but you've never worn a skirt in the cold. Never assume, Red said. (laughs) And a flicker of a smile crossed her face, then vanished. She frowned at the menu, and Red was grateful for the frown, as for the smile two quick ripples on the surface. Are you sad about something, he asked, besides the stockings? Do I look sad? Are you in love? No. Her voice was nice, but careful. A voice to keep people at bay. A waitress came, and the girl asked for soup. Red ordered the same, too distracted for the menu, and asked the girl's name which was Irene. "'You don't look like an Irene,' he said. "'What do I look like?' "'Sandra, Sonia, Zelda. "'Irene is a different girl.' "'People mistake me for Spanish,' she said. "Nah, no, not Spanish. A "'Russian, a Russian beauty. "'I don't look Russian.' "'Her skin's milky surface had a hint of pink beneath it, "'and he could guess how the piled-up hair "'would fall around her shoulders.' if she let it down. "'It's no insult,' Red said. He took pictures from his wallet of sweet Vera back home. "'That's a Russian girl,' he said. Vera was as American as they came, but she was beautiful, and she might pass for Russian. They'd been useful to each other, and she was useful even now, doing time as a Russian girl. (laughs) "'She's good-looking,' Irene said. She picked up another picture. "'This is lovely.' Red studied it. His sister Jackie, at nine or ten, wore his father's tweed cap sideways, tilting her head in the direction of the brim. She smiled, closed-mouthed, unknowing, straight at the camera. "'My sister,' Red said. His voice caught on the words. The suit came, and he tucked the photographs away. How many men have fallen in love with you, he asked. I don't know. He studied her and wondered what it would take to make his sister into a girl this reserved. Was it just the war? It was hard to imagine a war like this at home. The bombs blowing out doorsteps in Biloxi and whole buildings in New York. How many men are still in love with you right now? I don't know, she said. She didn't blush or appear to calculate. You're a beautiful girl. Really? Her forehead wrinkled, then smoothed. She lifted her spoon and cooled the soup deliberately before bringing it to her lips. Red thought about the lines of gray people outside. This girl was dark and light, rose skin and pink lips. It was worth his while to stay in this game, to get past her guard. Do you like being beautiful? It's better than not being, I suppose. There was almost a shrug in her voice. Red felt a small, bright victory at provoking it. You suppose, he said. He couldn't keep from laughing. I've never met anyone like you, he said. You're either the smartest or the dumbest girl I've ever known. She looked at him. Is that nice? Red pushed the weak soup away. I give up, he said. Let's go. He was only half-surprised that she followed. It was his last night as a man who'd been good at his training in Florida. In the morning, he'd be a man who was at war. The night was clear, cool in the absence of clouds, moonless and starry in the blackout, and the air improved Red's mood. The waiting lines had dispersed into walking people, single and in pairs, and the people didn't seem so sad in the dark. There had been no bombs for days, and spirits were high. With Irene beside him, he crossed the Thames at Putney Bridge, and the water ran darkly beneath. The night was beautiful, the girl was beautiful, Red himself felt beautiful. Overcome, he caught the girl's hand in his, but it was so lifeless and passive, it made him angry. He crushed it in his grip sliding the bones and sinews inward toward the palm, the slender fingers crossing one over the other. Don't, the girl said. She pulled her hand from his, but kept walking by his side, eyes straight ahead. You're like death, Red said. There's no life in you, and what's the point of being beautiful? She stopped, and looked ready to answer but shook her head and began to walk again. He caught her then and kissed her hard. Her hair smelled like lilacs, but her skin smelled like nothing. There was no close body scent to distinguish her from the cold night air. He let her go and thought he saw some rising expression on her face, but again it went away. Her lips were smeared, She started walking as if nothing had happened. He caught her and matched her pace. She said, without looking at him, you're passionate, I guess. He felt the arteries in his neck distend in anger. He would walk her home and be done with it. The street lamps out, he had to be careful not to trip. He listened to the hollow click of her square heels, the thud of his own. You can stay with me if you like, she said. He stopped on the pavement, intending that she stop also, but she kept on, and he ran a few steps to keep up with her. You mean I can share your bed, he said. Yes, she said, if you like. Red laughed, but he had to think about the proposition, and he frowned to himself, hands stuffed in his pockets. To look at her, she was worth a lot, worth saying what the hell. But it made him sick to think of her blank face afterward on the pillow. Her even voice saying, are you finished? (laughs) It was the girls in his head who got him this farm. The images from movies, the thought of sweet Vera, the letters from his sister. This girl could poison all that. He couldn't take the chance. Well, I don't, he said finally. I don't like. Irene didn't seem angry, but said goodnight on the steps of a rooming house. Red didn't kiss her again. He walked back alone in the direction from which they had come, and every few steps he stomped his foot and swung one arm in the air to strike at the air. He'd been cruel to her, and yet he was in. There was no play in it, no beauty. He wanted to go back to America, to soft girls on porches, and blouses wet from dancing, and the old fight over who belonged to whom, or, or if anyone belonged to anyone. Instead, he was going to France and he'd be lucky to get back alive. He swung his arm at the air again and stomped, then turned and half ran, half walked back to her rooming house. He knocked, though it was late, and an old woman came to the door. I'd like to talk to that girl, Irene, he said. It's very important. The woman let him in to his surprise. And left him in the foyer while she knocked on a downstairs door. The girl emerged at the end of the hallway with her hand on the doorframe for support, side lit by the yellow light from her room. She still wore the black dress, but the red coat was gone, and she looked smaller standing there, her shoulders less queenly proud. The old woman disappeared. He'd meant to tell the girl about the movies he'd seen with the men in ranger training, when they crawled around in the swamps without a girl in sight for days, then found themselves in a dark room with Lana Turner begging for love. He wanted to tell her about men's desire, his own desire, and how little came in return for it sometimes. He thought there in the rooming house hallway he had some important point to make. But now he didn't know what the point was and couldn't find the words he meant to say. The girl's eyes were red from crying she must have controlled before opening the door. In the little room she had offered to share with him, he took her pale face in his hands, and it was warm. He hadn't felt that warmth when he had kissed her so roughly in the street. I have a sister, he said. I know, the girl said. Her eyes were lost looking and plaintive now. She's a sweet kid, he said. I could be sweet like her, Irene said. And she dipped her face toward his hand. Oh, don't do that, he said. "Don't, Don't say that. He looked around the little room. There was a knitted afghan over the foot of the single bed, a needlepoint pillow on a rocking chair, a bureau topped by a mirror leaning against the wall, the mirror spotty where the silver had worn away. A homely room that didn't match her. Why do you live here alone, he asked. What if I said I don't? No one else lives here, he said. She looked toward the spotty mirror. They killed my husband, she said, and I went to live with my granny. And they bombed her house, and she died in hospital. She looked back at him, her eyes drawn and tired. And now I live here. felt a quick glandular surge, a desire to avenge her. And it was like the movies, a blood-stirring patriotism and a girl he couldn't have. But he could have her. But he didn't want her. It all made him too sad. And he couldn't avenge her. All he could do was try not to get killed. He took her hand. Come out here, he said. No, no. Get your coat first. We shouldn't be in your room. She put on the red coat and tied it around her waist, and they sat on the front steps outside the rooming house. The stone was cold through Red's thin trousers, and he sat on his hands until it warmed up. The stars were bright with the street lamps dark, and no one walked by. They sat a long time, saying nothing. And then the girl lay back on the hard stoop and put her hands behind her head like a pillow. And Rhett did the same. I'm shipping out in the morning, he said after a while. It surprised him to think she didn't already know. She looked over at him. She was close enough to kiss if he sat up a little. But he didn't want that. He just wanted her lying there. Her eyes were so solemn. It's going to be worse than you know, she said. Red looked back up at the sky. A mist had drifted in, obscuring the stars, which had moved some distance along their course. And soon the waiting would be over. After a while, the girl moved her hand from behind her head and took Red's in hers, and they lay on the chill stone like an old couple in an old bed, fingers intertwined, until the sky began to lighten, and it was time for Red to go.
0: Keith Sarabica performed Miley Malloy's Red. I'm Meg Wallitzer. I love the quiet of this story. We know a battle for the world is going on all around these two people. The damage is everywhere. Even the fact that everyone is described as being in high spirits because there haven't been any bombs for three days makes you think about the bombs that will come, the spirits that will lower. As a result, the whole story feels suspended like a held breath. But for the moment in that suspension, we rest with the characters and their mutual instinct to be decent and kind. When we return, an old soldier who doesn't fade away. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. In our first story, Red, strangers met and gave each other a little comfort during a difficult time. If you missed it or want to find out more about us, please visit our website, SelectedShorts.org. There, find the Subscribe to Podcast button for links for Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. And please, if you like the show, share selected shorts with your friends and family who might want a little comfort too. The present seems filled with uncertainty, so honoring the past seems especially important. In the second half of the show, we offer two perspectives on war from the writer Kurt Vonnegut. Vonnegut was a World War II veteran and was taken prisoner in December 1944. Once released, he wrote reassuringly but candidly to his family. Letter Home is performed by Daily Show correspondent Jordan Klepper.
2: We're going to hear from Vonnegut in epistolary form, back when handwriting still existed and paper wasn't just used for yards-long CVS receipts. (laughs) Mr. Kurt V. was an avid letter writer, and much of his personal correspondence was collected in the 2014 volume, Kurt Vonnegut Letters. There's a lot about love and family, as well as protests to school boards who burned his books. This particular piece represents his first letter after being released as a POW in World War II, a period of his life that had the most profound effect on him. Listen for the heart and the gallows humor in the repetition of little phrases like, but not me. As the editor of the letters collection points out, it seems to foreshadow his famous world-weary acknowledgement, so it goes. Letter home, May 29th, 1945, La Havre, from PFC K. Vonnegut, Jr., 12102964, U.S. Army, to Kurt Vonnegut, Sr., and family. I'm told that you were probably never informed that I was anything other than missing in action. Chances are that you also failed to receive any of the letters I wrote from Germany. That leaves me a lot of explaining to do in Precy. I've been a prisoner of war since December 19, 1944, when our division was cut to ribbons by Hitler's last desperate thrust through Luxembourg and Belgium. Seven fanatical panzer divisions hit us and cut us off from the rest of Hodge's first army. The other American divisions on our flanks managed to pull out. We were obliged to stay and fight. Bayonets aren't much good against tanks. Our ammunition, food, and medical supplies gave out, and our casualties outnumbered those who could still fight, so we gave up. The 106th got a presidential citation and some British decoration from Montgomery for it, I'm told, but I'll be damned if it was worth it. I was one of the few who weren't wounded, for that much, thank God. Well, the supermen marched us without food, water, or sleep to Limburg, a distance of about 60 miles, I think, where we were loaded and locked up, 60 men to each small, unventilated, unheated boxcar. There were no sanitary accommodations. The floors were covered with fresh cow dung. There wasn't room for all of us to lie down. Half slept while the other half stood. We spent several days, including Christmas, on that Limburg siding. On Christmas Eve, the Royal Air Force bombed and strafed our unmarked train. They killed about 150 of us. We got a little water Christmas Day and moved slowly across Germany to a large POW camp in Molberg, south of Berlin. We were released from the boxcar on New Year's Day. The Germans herded us through scalding, delousing showers. Many men died from shock in the showers after 10 days of starvation, thirst, and exposure. But I didn't. Under the Geneva Convention, officers and non commissioned officers are not obliged to work when taken prisoner. I am. As you know, a private. 150 such minor beings were shipped to a Dresden work camp on January 10th. I was their leader by virtue of the little German I spoke. It was our misfortune to have sadistic and fanatical guards. We were refused medical attention and clothing. We were given long hours at extremely hard labor. Our food ration was 250 grams of black bread and one pint of unseasoned potato soup each day. After desperately trying to improve our situation for two months, and having been met with bland smiles, I told the guards just what I was going to do to them when the Russians came. They beat me up a little. I was fired as group leader. (laughs) Beatings were very small time. One boy starved to death, and the SS troops shot two for stealing food. On about February 14th, the Americans came over, followed by the RAF. Their combined labors killed 250,000 people in 24 hours and destroyed all of Dresden, possibly the world's most beautiful city, but not me. After that, we were put to work, carrying corpses from air raid shelters, women, children, old men, dead from concussion, fire, or suffocation. Civilians cursed us and threw rocks as we carried bodies to huge funeral pyres in the city. When General Patton took Leipzig, we were evacuated on foot to Helixedorf on the Saxony-Czechoslovakian border. There we remained until the war ended. Our guards deserted us. On that happy day, the Russians were intent on mopping up isolated outlaw resistance in our sector. Their planes, P-39s, strafed and bombed us, killing 14. But not me. Eight of us stole a team and a wagon. We traveled and looted our way through Sudetenland and Saxony for eight days, living like kings. The Russians are crazy about Americans. The Russians picked us up in Dresden. We rode from there to the American lines at Hall in Lenley's Ford trucks. We've since been flown to La Havre. I'm writing from a Red Cross club in the La Havre POW repatriation camp. I'm being wonderfully well-fed and entertained. The state-bound ships are jammed, naturally, so, I'll have to be patient. I hope to be home in a month. Once home, I'll be given 21 days' recuperation at Attenbury, about $600 back pay, and, get this, 60 days' furlough. I have too damn much to say. The rest will have to wait. I can't receive mail here, so don't write. May 29, 1945. Love, Kurt Jr.
0: Jordan Klepper read Kurt Vonnegut's letter home. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Vonnegut's experiences as a POW informed his novel Slaughterhouse-Five. But Vonnegut had a different side. It's reflected in stories about small moments from small lives in small towns. Our story today, The Cruise of the Jolly Roger, is a moving tale about a side of war that's too often forgotten coming home. Its central character is a retired army man without a sense of who he is anymore or why men like him matter. In the course of one afternoon, he finds out. The Cruise of the Jolly Roger is performed by Tegel F. Bouget. His stage work includes The Good Negro, A Raisin in the Sun, and The Tempest. Film credits include Night at the Museum and A Beautiful Mind. Here is his reading of Kurt Vonnegut's The Cruise of the Jolly Roger.
3: During the Great Depression, Nathan Durant was homeless until he found a home in the United States Army. He spent 17 years in the Army, thinking of the earth as terrain, of the hills and valleys as enfilade and defilade, of the horizon as something a man should never silhouette himself against, of the houses and woods and thickets as cover. It was a good life. And when he got tired of thinking about war, He got himself a girl and a bottle. And the next morning, he was ready to think about war some more. When he was 36, an enemy projectile dropped into a command post under thick green cover and defilade in the terrain of Korea and blew Major Durant, his maps, and his career through the wall of his tent. He had always assumed that he was going to die young and gallantly. But he didn't die. Death was far, far away, and Durant faced unfamiliar and frightening battalions of peaceful years. In the hospital, the man in the next bed talked constantly of the boat he was going to own when he was whole again. For want of exciting peacetime dreams of his own, for want of a home or family or civilian friends, Durant borrowed his neighbor's dream. With a deep scar across his cheek, with the lobe of his right ear gone, with a stiff leg, he limped into a boatyard in New London, the port nearest the hospital, and bought a second-hand cabin cruiser. He learned to run it in the harbor there, christened the boat the Jolly Roger at the suggestion of some children who haunted the boatyard, and set out arbitrarily for Martha's Vineyard. He stayed on the island but a day, depressed by the tranquility and permanence by the feeling of deep, still lakes of time, by men and women so at one with the peace of the place as to have nothing to exchange with an old soldier but a few words about the weather. Durant fled to Chatham at the elbow of Cape Cod and found himself beside a beautiful woman at the foot of a lighthouse there. Had he been in his old uniform, seeming as he'd like to seem in the old days, about to leave on a dangerous mission, He and the woman might have strolled off together. Women had once treated him like a small boy with special permission to eat icing off cakes. (laughs) But the woman looked away without interest. He was nobody. And nothing. The spark was gone. His former swashbuckling spirits returned for an hour or two during a brief blow off the dunes of Cape Cod's east coast. But there was no one aboard to notice. When he reached the sheltered harbor at Provincetown and went ashore, he was a hollow man again, who didn't have to be anywhere at any time, whose life was all behind him. Uh, look up, please," commanded a gaudily dressed young man with a camera in his hands and a girl on his arm. Uh, Surprised, Durant did look up, and the camera shutter clicked. "Thank you," said the young man brightly. "Are you a painter?" asked his girl. Uh, "Painter." said Durant, no, no, retired army officer. The couple did a poor job of covering their disappointment. Uh, Sorry, said Durant, (laughs) and he felt dull and annoyed. Oh, said the girl, there's some real painters over there. Durant glanced at the artist, three men and one woman, probably in their late 20s, who sat on the wharf, their backs to a silvered splintering pile sketching. The woman, a tan brunette, was looking right at Durant. Do you mind being sketched, she asked. "Uh, No, no, I guess not, said Durant bearishly. Freezing in his pose, he wondered what it was he'd been thinking about that had made him interesting enough to draw. He realized that he'd been thinking about lunch, (laughs) about the tiny galley aboard the Jolly Roger about the four wrinkled wieners, the half pound of cheese, and the flat remains of a quart of beer that awaited him there. There, said the woman. You see? She held out the sketch. What Durant saw was a big, scarred, hungry man, hunched over and desolate as a lost child. Do I really look that bad? (laughs) He said, managing to laugh. "'Well, do you really feel that awful? "'I was thinking of lunch. "'Lunch can be pretty terrible.' (laughs) "'Oh, not where we eat,' she said. "'Why not come with us?' Major Durant went with them, with the three men, Ed, Teddy, and Lou, who danced through life that seemed full of funny secrets, and with the girl, Marion. He found he was relieved to be with others again, even with these others.' and his step down the walk was jaunty. At lunch, the four spoke of painting, ballet, and drama. Durant grew tired of counterfeiting interest, but he kept at it. Isn't the food good here, said Marion, in a casual and polite aside. Um, Durant said, but the shrimp sauce is, is flat. It needs, um, it, uh, he gave up. The four were off again in their merry whirlwind of talk. Did you just drive here, said Teddy, when he saw Durant staring at him disapprovingly. No, uh, I came in my boat. A boat? They echoed, excited, and Durant found himself center stage. What kind, said Marion. A cabin cruiser, said Durant. Their faces fell. Oh, said Marion, one of those floating tourist cabins with a motor? Well, said Durant, tempted to tell them about the blow he'd weathered. It's certainly no picnic when, what's its name, said Lou. Jolly Roger, said Durant. The four exchanged glances and then burst into laughter, repeating the boat's name to Durant's consternation and and bafflement. If you had a dog, said Marion, I bet you'd call it Spot. (laughs) Seems like a perfectly good name for a dog, said Durant, reddening. Marion reached across the table and patted his hand. "Ah, you lamb, you mustn't mind us. She was an irresponsibly affectionate woman and appeared to have no idea how profoundly her touch was moving the lonely Durant in spite of his resentment. Here we've been talking away and not letting you say a word, she said. What is it you do in the army? Durant was startled. He hadn't mentioned the army and there was no insignia on his faded khakis. Well, I was in Korea for a little while, and I'm out of the army now because of wounds. The four were impressed and respectful. Do you mind talking about it? asked Ed. Durant sighed. He did mind talking about it to Ed, Teddy, and Lou, but he wanted very much for Marion to hear about it wanted to show her that while he couldn't speak her language, he could speak one of his own, that he had life to it. No, he said, there are some things that would just as well stay unsaid, but for the most part, why not talk about it? He sat back and lit a cigarette and squinted into the past as though through a thin screen of shrubs and a forward observation post. Well, he said, We were over on the East Coast, and uh, he had never tried to tell the tale before, and now in his eagerness to be glib and urbane, he found himself including details, large and small as they occurred to him, until his tale was no tale at all, but a formless, unwieldy description of war as it had really seemed, a senseless, complicated mess that in the telling was first-rate realism, but miserable entertainment. He had been talking for 20 minutes now, and his audience had finished coffee and dessert and two cigarettes apiece, and the waitress was getting restive about the check. Durant, florid and irritated with himself, was trying to manage a cast of thousands spread over the 40,000 square miles of South Korea. His audience was listening with glazed eyes, brightening at any sign that the parts were about to be brought together into a whole, and thence to an end. But the signs were always false. And at last, when Marion swallowed her third yawn, Durant blew himself in his story through the wall of his tent and fell silent. Well, said Ted. It's hard for us who haven't seen it to imagine. Words can hardly convey it, said Marion. She patted Durant's hand again. You've been through so much and you're so modest about it. There's nothing really, said Durant. After a moment of silence, Marion stood. It's certainly been pleasant and interesting, Major, and we all wish you bon voyage on the Jolly Roger. And there it ended. Back aboard the Jolly Roger, Durant finished the stale quart of beer and told himself he was ready to give up. To sell the boat, return to the hospital, put on a bathrobe and play cards and thumb through magazines until doomsday. Moodily, he studied his charts for a course back to New London. It was then he realized that he was only a few miles from the home village of a friend who had been killed in the Second World War. It struck him as wryly fitting that he should call on this ghost on his way back. He arrived at the village through an early morning mist, the day before Memorial Day, feeling ghost-like himself. He made a bad landing that shook the village dock and tied the Jolly Roger with a clumsy knot. When he reached the main street, he found it quiet, but lined with flags. Only two other people were abroad to glance at the dour stranger. He stepped into the post office and spoke to the brisk old woman who was sorting mail in a rickety cage. "Uh, Pardon me, said Durant, I'm looking for the Pefco family. Pefco? Pefco, said the postmistress. That doesn't sound like any name around here. Pefco? They, they, They summer people? No, I don't think so. I'm sure they're not. They may have moved away a while ago. Well, if they lived here, you'd think I'd know. They'd come here for the mail. There's only 400 of us year-round, and I never heard of any uh, Pethco. The secretary from the law office across the street came in and knelt by Durant and worked the combination lock of her mailbox. Annie, said the postmistress, you know about anybody named Pethco around here? "Uh, No, said Annie, unless they had one of the summer cottages out on the dunes. It's hard to keep track of who is in those. They're changing hands all the time. She stood and Durant saw that she was attractive in a determinately practical way, without wiles or ornamentation. But Durant was now so convinced of his own dullness that his manner toward her was perfunctory. Look, he said, my name is Durant, Major Nathan Durant, and one of my best friends in the Army was from here, George Pefco, I know he was from here, he said. He said it, so all of his records, they all say it. I'm sure of it. Oh, said Annie. Now wait, 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 wait. That's right. Certainly now I remember. You you knew him, said Durant. I knew of him, said Annie. I know now who you're talking about. The one that got killed in the war. Uh, I was with him, said Durant. Uh, Still can't say as I remember him, said the postmistress. You don't remember him probably, but you remember the family, said Annie. And they did live out on the dunes too. Goodness, that was a long time ago, 10 or 15 years. Remember that big family that talked Paul Eldridge into letting them live in one of the summer cottages all winter? About six kids or more. That was the Pefco's. A wonder they didn't freeze to death with nothing but a fireplace for heat. The old man came out here to pick cranberries and stayed on through the winter. Well, wouldn't exactly call this their hometown then, said the postmistress. Well, George did, said Durant. Well, said Annie, I suppose one hometown was as good as another for young George. Those Pefcos were wanderers. George enlisted from here, said Durant. I suppose that's how he settled on it. By the same line of reasoning, Durant had chosen Pittsburgh as his hometown, though a dozen other places had a strong claim. One of those people who found a home in the army, said the postmistress. Scrawny, tough boy, I I remember now, his family never got any mail. That was it, and they weren't church people. That's why I forgot. They were drifters. He must have been about your brother's age, Annie. I know, but I tagged after my brother all the time in those days, and George Pefco never had anything to do with his gang. They kept to themselves, the Pefcos did. There must be somebody who remembers him well, said Durant. Somebody who he... He let the sentence die on a note of urgency. It was unbearable that every vestige of George had disappeared, unmissed. Now that I think about it, said Annie, I'm almost sure there's a square named after him. "Uh, A square, said Durant. Not really a square, said Annie. They just call it a square. When a man from around here gets killed in a war, the town names some little plot of town property after him, a traffic circle or something like that. They put up a plaque with his name on it. That triangle down by the village dock, I'm almost sure that was named for your friend. It's hard to keep track of them all these days, said the postmistress. Would you like to go down and see it, said Annie. I'll be glad to show you. Uh, A plaque, said Durant. Oh, never mind. He dusted his hands. Well, uh, which way is the restaurant? The one with the bar. After June 15th, Anywhere you want to go, said the postmistress, but right now everything is closed and shuttered. You can get a sandwich at the drugstore. I might as well move on, said Durant. Well, as long as you've come, you ought to stay for the parade, said Annie. (laughs) After 17 years in the army. That'd be a real treat, said Durant. (laughs) What parade? Memorial Day, said Annie. That's tomorrow, I thought, said Durant. The children march today. School is closed tomorrow. She smiled. I'm afraid you're going to have to endure one more parade, Major, because here it comes. Durant followed her apathetically out onto the sidewalk. He could hear the sound of a band, but the marchers weren't yet in sight. There were no more than a dozen people waiting for the parade to pass. They go from square to square, said Annie. We really ought to wait for them down by George's. Whatever you say, said Durant, I'll be closer to the boat. They walked down the slope toward the village dock and the Jolly Roger. They keep up the squares very nicely, said Annie. Uh, They always do, they always do, said Durant. Are you in a hurry to get somewhere else today? (sighs) Me, said Durant. Me, nothing's waiting for me anywhere. Oh, I see, I'm sorry. It isn't your fault. I I don't understand. I'm not an army bum like George. They should have handed me a plaque and shot me. I'm not worth a dime to anybody. Here's the square, said Annie gently. Where? Oh, oh, that? The square was a triangle of grass, 10 feet on the side, an accident of intersecting lanes and a footpath. In its center was a low boulder on which was fixed a small metal plaque, easily overlooked. George Pefko Memorial Square, said Durant. By golly, I wonder what George would have made of that. (laughs) He'd like it, wouldn't he, said Annie. (laughs) He'd probably laugh. I don't see that there's anything to laugh about. Nothing, nothing at all, except that it it doesn't have much to do with anything, does it? Except that. Who cares about George? Why should anyone care about George? It's just what people are expected to do. Put up a plaque. The bandsmen were in sight now, all eight of them, teenagers, out of step, rounding a corner with confident, proud, sour, and incoherent noise, intended to be music. Before them rode the town policeman, fat with leisure, authority, leather, bullets, pistol, handcuffs, club, and a badge. He was splendidly oblivious to the smoking, backfiring motorcycle beneath him as he swept slowly back and forth before the parade. Behind the band came a cloud of purple seeming to float a few feet above the street. It was lilacs carried by children. Along the curb, teachers looking as austere as New England churches called orders to the children. The lilacs came in time this year, said Annie. Sometimes they don't. It's touch and go. Is that so, said Durant. A teacher blew a whistle. The parade halted, and Durant found a dozen children bearing down on him, their eyes large, their arms filled with flowers, their knees lifted high. Durant stepped aside. A bugler played taps badly. The children laid their flowers before the plaque on George Pefco Memorial Square. Lovely, whispered Annie. Yes, said Durant, it would make a statue want to (laughs) cry. But what does it mean? Tom, called Annie to a small boy who had just laid down his flowers. Tom, why did you do that? The boy looked around guiltily. Uh, Do what? Put the flowers down there, said Annie. Tell them you're paying homage to one of the fallen, valiant, who selflessly gave his life, prompted a teacher. Tom looked at her blankly and then back at the flowers. Don't you know, said Annie. Sure, said Tom at last. Um, he, he died fighting so we could be safe and free. And we're thanking him with flowers because it was a nice thing to do. He looked up at Annie, amazed that she should ask. Everybody knows that. <laughs> the policeman raced his motorcycle engine. The teacher shepherded the children back into line. The parade moved on. Well, said Annie, are you sorry you had to endure one more parade, Major? No, uh, You know, it's true, isn't it? Murmured Durant. It's so damn simple and so easy to forget. Watching the innocent marchers under the flowers, he was aware of life, the beauty and importance of a village at peace. Maybe I never knew, never had any way of knowing, this is what war is about, isn't it? This. (laughs) Ah, <laughs> oh, Durant laughed. George, you homeless, horny, wild old rummy, he said to George Pefco Memorial Square. Damned if you didn't turn out to be a saint. The old spark was back. Major Durant, home from the wars, was somebody. I wonder, he said to Annie, if you'd have lunch with me and then maybe we could go for a ride on my boat.
0: (laughs) Tegel F. Bouget performed The Cruise of the Jolly Roger by Kurt Vonnegut. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Backstage at Symphony Space, Bouget spoke about the story's exploration of one man's loneliness.
3: He planned to be in the military his whole life, and he thought he would die in the military, and he wouldn't have to worry about life after. Well, he gets blown up, as he thought would eventually happen, but he doesn't die. So it's loneliness, his isolation. Just what do I do now? There's a wonderful passage in the story. The reason he gets the boat is he's in the hospital, And he doesn't know what he's going to do, and someone who's in the ward near him talks about, my dream is to get a boat, I'm going to get a boat. And um, our hero, in effect, steals this guy's dream and gets out and he says, sounds good, I'm going to get a boat. (laughs) So I was really struck by that.
0: A small town has honored an ordinary man, and Nathan Durant believes that he's invisible until a group of children remind him of who he is. Only Vonnegut could get that close to outright sentimentality and turn it into something thought-provokingly honorable. Two quiet stories for our tumultuous times. Two ways of thinking about honor. Some people have been saying that reading feels harder lately because they feel overwhelmed by the world. But when you fall under the spell of a story, in those moments, you're not overwhelmed, you're involved. And it's not escapism. We do live in the world, and we need to find ways to think about it and look at it even during hard times, maybe especially during them. Our best writers help us do that. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our mix engineer for this episode was Jennifer Nolson. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achilles and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vida Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by the Isaiah Sheffer Fund for new initiatives. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.